for a very limited time, if you use coupon code RIDE at RoadID.com, you'll score $5 off that one piece of gear no cyclist should ride without. Again, that coupon code is RIDE. And in case you were wondering, Road IDs range in price from a mere $20 bucks to $35. Bucks. So not only are they inexpensive, but they look good, last forever, and just might save your life. So stop procrastinating. Go out and get one of these bad boys today. Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby Julik, and outskirts visionary Gus Morton invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Welcome back to Put Your Socks On. I'm Bobby Julik, and as always, I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Gus Morton. Today we're talking about the amazing stage 15 of the 2019 Tour de France from Limoux to Foix, finishing on Prade de Albi. I hope you guys didn't miss this one. This was a keeper. How you doing today, Gus? Bobby, I'm really well. And mate, what is going on at this year's Tour de France? Just when you think there is some sort of order, it all just gets flipped on its head. Today was a cracker of a stage. And the show we've got lined up for you is a cracker of a show. We've got the super fan. We're also going to be talking about positive mental attitude with a legend, worked with NASCAR cycling, 30 years experience, Mike Lepp. Uh, I'm excited about this one and I'm excited to, to get in and, uh, and, and talk today's stage. Uh, I want to say thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, if you need to get in touch with us, got any questions for the superfan, you got any questions for Bobby or I, superfan at velonews.com or Bobby on Instagram at bobby.julik and myself at that is Gus. Before we get in the road, Bobby, let's hear our daily dose of road ID trivia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. It's time for today's daily dose of road ID tour trivia to play head on over to roadid.com slash TDF. Today's question, this Frenchman was the first cyclist to win the Tour de France three times in a row. Go to roadid.com slash TDF to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize. A GoPro Hero 7 Black. One lucky winner will even take home a $10,000 BMC shopping spree. Again, that's roadid.com slash tdf bobby where do we start with today's stage so much going on after yesterday also a cracker stage the race got flipped on its head again and then today we saw a lot of guys come out swinging that suffered yesterday and uh and a lot of guys going on the attack yeah just tearing up the script Talk us through, yeah, I mean, how, how was the race one? Let's, let's start from, uh, from the break. I think we need to back up and really give these guys credit and talk about it from basically kilometer zero. You know, it's the 15th stage of the Tour de France. Everyone's tired. But the way that those guys started the race today, for well upwards of 55 kilometers, it was just groups going, groups coming back. It was absolute full on. You know, hot conditions. I'm sure the riders are, are happy that this is the last stage in the Pyrenees, but 
man, it, it just seemed like they had ants in their pants. They, they wanted to get it over with, like they weren't even scared of the climbing they had in front of them. It looked like a break was going to go right away. And then in the background, you see this massive figure of Peter Sagan in the green jersey bridging across and towing a bunch of guys with him, you know, just basically reset the whole dials again. And after that, the race was on until, until a break finally did get away. There was 28 riders in that initial move. We had Nibali, Nairo was up there, Bardet, the eventual winner, Simon Yates, Michael Woods, and it eventually ballooned up to 36 riders. Again, a massive breakaway on a very dangerous stage. And a lot of the teams, okay, it wasn't any of the, you know, the top favorites, but there was a bunch of guys in there saying, hey, listen, I'm not throwing in the towel yet. You know, we're, we're going to do this all the way to Paris. So starting at the first climb of the day, which ironically, back in 2012, if you remember, this is where all those tacks were thrown on the road. And like upwards of 30 people had flat tires and just the race was like, you know, the cars were running out of spare tires. It was absolute bedlam, right? Because some joker decided it would be funny to put uh, tax on the road. Uh, that's where pretty much straight away, the group kind of decided that, you know, we got to get over this one together. And that one was won by, by Michael Woods right in front of Nibali and, and Bardet. So three guys that have had a challenging start to the Tour de France just flipping the script and trying to do something positive right from the gun. It was great seeing these guys not throw in the towel, but instead looking for a stage win, which is a positive mental attitude, which is our theme today, just right on cue. There was so many things to talk about here. Very interesting was Michael Matthews was in that group. And, and I've said numerous times that Peter Sagan is the only guy that can do that sort of move, you know, on a mountain day, get into the group and score maximum points. But I'm going to have to redact that statement and say that Michael Matthews can do it as well, because he sure did. He took the maximum points there at kilometer 93 and a half. Sagan tried to be in there, but wound up missing the break. Matthew makes that a la Sagan sort of move and marks the maximum points. And it just... You just got to wonder if he would have taken that green jersey a little bit more serious at the beginning if, if he'd be anywhere closer. But anyway, on the, the first cat one of the day, and we had three of them at 120.5, that's where Simon decided, okay, I need to split this group up. So from the bottom of the climb, he broke that group down, uh, made a very hard initial acceleration. Only five or six guys was, were able to go with him. But then about halfway up, everyone kind of found their rhythm, and, and it was a pretty big group at the top. But one thing that I found incredible was that they panned back to the peloton, and Decoinet Quickstep is riding tempo. And who's riding tempo but their sprinter, Viviani? I don't know if I've ever seen him ride tempo on a mountain day before. That was, that was cool to see. And that just goes to show you the ambiance that they have in that team and how they're all in for Alaphilippe. But and that's exactly right. Like he left Team Sky because he wanted to be able to go to the Tour de France and not have to basically ride the front. You know, he wanted to be able to chase stage wins, right? And, uh, and he's obviously been able to do that there. But, you know, when, when push comes to shove and, and all of a sudden they, they've got a sniff of the yellow jersey, He's up there on the front. And that does show you exactly that, that if you can build a good tapestry for a team, then, uh, then riders will step up to the plate. And yeah, he really did today. The one bad thing for to coin a quick step right there was Moss was dropped. So you knew 
something was wrong with him because if Viviani is dropping him off the wheel, that's a problem, and we hope he recovers. So, yeah, that, that second KOM was won by Bardet. You know, flipping the script and, you know, going for those KOM points, being in the breakaway, that's, that's what we want to see, right? Um, the, the third climb, the penultimate climb, also very, very tricky. This was the one that had the time bonus on the top. Landa and Fuglesong actually attacked 3K from the top of that uh, climb and, and got a small gap. Unfortunately, Fuglesong wasn't able to, to, to hang with him. And, you know, Ju- uh, Jumbo Visma takes, takes the front. But at that time, already 30K out, uh, Alaphilippe was isolated. So it was pretty interesting there with Landa pushing on. Amador dropped out of the front group along with Soler and, and met him kind of halfway, paced him to the base of the final climb. That was where the, the race really started off. I mean, Yates was alone at this, uh, actually Geshka, Simon Geshka, there was two Simons up the road today. Simon Geshka took the KOM points at the top. They had about a two and a half lead over the minute lead over the Peloton at that moment. But Yates closed basically a 30 second gap in the last kilometer of that climb, went over the top with Geshka. And, you know, I think uh, he owes him a beer tonight because without Geshka helping him on that descent and the run into the final climb, I think maybe things would have been a little bit different, right? But those guys were working well together for sure. But there was so much going on. I think it's worth making a note going back to when Lander and Fuglesang attacked three kilometers from the top of the penultimate climb. And when Jumbo Visma started chasing, that group was tiny. That group was the same size at that point as it was yesterday on the Col de Tourmalet with three kilometers to go. So it just shows you that these guys race this hard, race this stage absolutely all out. And that accumulation, you know, like mass dropped early, like that accumulation of fatigue is really hitting these guys in, in a dramatic way. And it's just showing you that this Tour de France has been hard and in a really unique way, I think, that a lot of riders just haven't been able to prepare for. Yeah. As soon as Landa made that acceleration, that group just exploded. And there was, it was very, very small, like you said. So leading into the final climb, the Prade Prad de, de Albi, which has never been used before in the Tour de France, Yates from 9K out just had to drop the other Simon. was in all in for the stage win at that time uh, it would have been nice if he you know paid back uh Geshka with a little bit more tempo but from nine I don't think he had the confidence of the gap that he had between uh himself and and the the main GC contenders at that time so he takes off with with 9k to go uh Landa starts to go all in and close and closes the gap up to uh Bardet uh Bardet can't hold the wheel FDJ hit the front with Gaudu again, you know, this 22-year-old kid who was struggling a little bit in the first couple climbs came back to put in a really good pull on the final climb to set up Pinot. Rigo got dropped 6.5K from the top. I think he was the one that uh, maybe the GC favorites that, that lost the most today. But then, man, I've been waiting for this for so long is to see one of the GC favorites just launch for more than like 2K out or 1K out like they have been doing so controlled. Pino attacked full gas, sprinting out of his saddle with six kilometers to go, 6K to go. Alaphilippe and Bokeman were able to respond initially, 
But then a K later, Alaphilippe dropped. And, you know, this wasn't a major altitude climb, but, you know, he had to kind of check himself there and, and make sure that he didn't go over his limit and stay with a group and limit, limit the time loss that he had. And man, Walt Poles, he has not been that great so far in the tour this year. But if there was a day that Thomas needed him, it was today. So great job, Volt Pools coming through with the goods and a halfway decent ride today, or much more, much better than halfway decent. Then Pino drops Bernal with 4K to go. I've never seen Bernal get dropped before. Like, he just rode him off his wheel. It was almost like you felt like saying to Pino, like, stop looking behind you, just go. Because it was like every 10 pedal strokes, he'd look back kind of to check to see if Bernal was still there. And when he was, he would kind of stand up on the pedals and sprint again and then sit back down and look behind him. And then it, was just, it was a bizarre sort of style, but it looked like he'd basically sprinted for the last six, six, five, six k up that climb. Pino was uh, a man possessed today. Yeah, yeah. He had steam coming out of his ears. Uh, very, very Contador-esque when you think about it, right? And remember, a lot of these guys, especially from Team Ineos, they're, they're steady-state climbers. They don't like so much acceleration. Um, you know, Chris Froome actually had to learn how to absorb those crazy accelerations that Contador used to do. And yeah, it took him a year, but he figured it out and then was able to, you know, drop Contador quite often. But it was it was absolutely great to see a guy throwing caution to the wind. And I mean, at one time he like goes into his big ring up up the final climb. Like that that had to have been like just a nightmare scenario for a guy like Bernal. And yep, you know, hit him once, let him come back, hit him again, and then just keep going. And you can't say enough about that sort of panache that, that he shows. And the French riders in this tour, they're just playing off each other, aren't they? I mean, gosh, they're just pushing each other to be better and better. And it's been a long time since we've seen, you know, multiple French riders doing this and working so well together. I mean, you saw yesterday after the finish, Alaphilippe and, and Pinot actually hugging each other. Uh, you know, so they, they, they're, this is a really cool dynamic that they have going on right now. But Man, great stage win by Simon Yates. What, how cool was that, that he actually got to enjoy the last couple hundred meters and just soak it all in? Yeah, that was a great bounce back for, for Mitchelton Scott. And, and he's just had an outstanding Tour de France. Yeah, I mean, they've got, to be, they've got to be really happy with that. Again, another masterclass today, like stayed calm, attacked at the right point. And, uh, and, and never looked back, really, did he? No, not at all. I mean, from, from the moment that he got into that breakaway, he looked like he was the marked guy, and he just kind of stamped his authority on the race right from the, the beginning and showed his cards that he was, he was in it to win it today. And, yeah, like you said, great, great performance by Michelton Scott. They, got, they were a little disappointed with the result yesterday. And that, again, just goes to our theme today, that positive mental attitude of, you know, hey, Winning three stages in the Tour de France, and we still have more to go. They could win another one. I'd have to put that up there with getting fourth or fifth in GC. But what, what a stage. I mean, obviously, Simon was a, a huge standout, Pinot. But you have to hand it to the teamwork that we witnessed today from Movistar. That was pretty cool. I mean, it didn't pan out the way they wanted it to, but... They, they had a plan, a well-thought-out plan, a well-executed plan, and they just ran into some, some, some stronger legs today. That break took so long to go. 
and it was so hard. Guys were getting ridden off the wheel. You know, it was it was trending uphill. You know, the first half hour was over 50k an hour. The first hour was about 48. It was on, and yet Movistar still managed to put four guys in that move. I don't think people understand. Like, I, I mean, I like I look at that and I'm like, that's impressive. They had three guys in that move, and then Landa came across. Yeah, there was multiple teams with three guys up there. That that was dangerous. I'm. If I was Ineos in the Ineos car, I would have been a little bit nervous knowing that Pinot had multiple teammates up there, that Landa, Landa had multiple teammates up there, including Quintana. Yeah, that must have been a little bit stressful, to say the least. There's an interesting question asked uh, to Nico Portal, the director at, at Sky yesterday, basically saying, you've never raced a Tour de France like this. Your team's never been in a position like this, you know, um, where you're having to attack instead of having to defend. And, uh, and he said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and basically, uh, yeah, basically admitted that they were in uncharted territory and that they were having to, to rethink their strategy a little bit, which was uh, interesting, you know, from, from that team, a team that's normally pretty stoic and pretty, you know, seeming like they've got everything under control. Don't worry. They'll, they'll learn a lot. They'll analyze everything and they'll improve and make sure that they don't make these sort of mistakes again. One thing I want, so, so I've, I've boasted about a lot of people today, but the one thing that I didn't really understand and was, was how Jumba Visma or why Jumba Visma decided to take the race by the, the horns and try to control it from so far out. I mean, I get it, but it's not necessarily up to them to put all th three guys on the front and use a guy like George Bennett so early, uh, Lawrence Duplus so early, and then leave leave your leader isolated. I mean, if if Kreiswijk was saying over the radio, "I'm super today," okay, maybe. But we see we saw that he wasn't super. He was good, but man. I, I just have to question what, what they were thinking there, maybe biting off a little bit more than they can chew, to be honest. And yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you lean on the other teams and, and force the guys who are in front of you to, to do the chasing in order to leapfrog them? But um, anyway, they did what they did and, and a fantastic stage. Pinot second, Lander third, and uh, a big shakeup on the general classification. Let's uh, move on to the super fan, shall we? And field a, uh, field a question. How you doing, Superfan? It's time for Superfan. Guys, I'm great. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, something I heard the descending coach, Oscar Saez, mention when you guys were giving him that great interview the other day. He talked about taking riders to a cart track to get a feel for their abilities through the corners. Obviously, the sport of cycling requires a very specific skill set, but I'm curious, Bobby, if there are any other sports, activities, or practices you have drawn inspiration from or borrowed from to help push the limits with your athletes. I'm thinking yoga stretches or anything you can glean from other endurance sports. Good question. Um, yeah. So yeah. Thanks. Super fan. With with descending, and this is something that I should have asked uh, Oscar during the the interview. I think it all boils down to balance and coordination, knowing what your bike can do is very important, but you need to have good balance. So I actually have a lot of my clients working on the Swiss ball. And at first, just on their knees with their hands on the, the ball, just to make sure that they don't fall off. And then more and more, you know, used to it, 
I guess they get, they go up on their knees and then they kind of make little figure eights and, and like little circles each way. Then actually kind of hold your hands as if like you're holding the handlebars. And this is much in more of the advanced phase of this, but then having someone next to you. And I learned this from a, a, um, a trainer that I used one off season in Philadelphia and he called it the dirty biker. And basically, so you're on your knees on the ball, your hands kind of handlebar width apart. And he would like bump up next to me and kind of knock me off balance. And I'd have to absorb that pressure and not fall off the ball. So I think, you know, the, the car track thing and video games thing, that's, that's a little bit kind of out of my league, but I think the basic work of balance on a fitball is super helpful for, for riders to use in improving not only their bike handling, but their descending for sure. And then if you really want to get Uber specific, and I suggest you don't do this without two spotters on each side is attempt to actually stand on the fitball. And that is very, very difficult. I've seen some people on the internet that can basically jump from the ground onto the fitball and then, you know, just bounce around like, like a, a circus performer. But for most cyclists, that's, that's quite difficult. So, you know, on your knees, dirty biker, maybe, but be a little bit careful, be extremely careful with actually pushing the limits and standing on the ball. Because I did see a teammate try to do that once he fell off and then broke his elbow. Not good. The most influential uh, exercise on my um, on my bike riding skill set was we used to have an old Mazda. It was a 1969 Mazda 626 um, that we got given from uh, a from a uh, like a junkyard basically that still ran, and we um, we we used to we built a rally car track in the backyard. And we'd put our bike helmets on and we'd all hop in the car and rally it round. And that was how we learned how to, um, that was how we learned how to, to drive, to drive and to, to descend, I guess, and, and have bike handling skills. Um, and I will note that my younger brother, Lachlan, he actually flipped that car over and that was the end of it. And I think he was about nine years old at that time, or maybe like 10 <laughs> years old. So we're pretty, we're pretty young. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's where we where we, we we picked up most of our skills was on the uh, on the rally car track. Bobby, it's day fifteen of the Tour de France. The theme today is positive mental attitude. The guys are really leaning heavily on that, you know, on keeping a positive mindset at this stage of the race. Right, you're exhausted, you know, you've had your setbacks, you're kind of over it, but you've still got to keep fighting for another six days. Let's get into how today's theme and, and, and the importance of, you know, keeping the mind on the up and not letting things uh, overwhelm you. This sport is so incredibly difficult and we've seen some major ups and some major downs, but you got to stay positive. You got to take out that silver lining. You got to laugh because ultimately this is just a sport, right? So you got to enjoy it. And sometimes it's very hard. I can imagine what Bardet went through yesterday. But he, he was surrounded by all of his teammates. I thought that was a, an amazing gesture. All those guys staying with him and then hugging him and supporting him. And look what happened. He came out and tried to do his best today. If, if he would have been left by his own, on his own and then kind of shunned by his teammates for, oh, man, you know, you totally let us down, 
then he probably would have been uh, home by now. So it makes a mega difference of of having a positive attitude, even when things go sideways. And let's talk about, you know, this year's Tour de France, the script's been flipped a number of times. You think about a guy like Chris Froome, right, who had a, a, a life-threatening accident uh, right before the Tour de France, you know, talk about flipping the script, like, you know, and then we get into the race and big time gaps on days when there normally wouldn't be in small time gaps on the climbing stages where we thought there would be bigger ones and guys you know losing and winning in different ways like how have we seen guys bounce back and teams bounce back this year at the Tour de France there's been a few good examples yeah Michelton Scott comes to mind right away instantly redeeming themselves after a very disappointing situation where GC is kind of out the window now and now they're going to concentrate on stages uh Movistar the same thing you know coming back from a disappointment yesterday and maybe some technical uh tactical issues and 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 doing a, close to a masterpiece today. Pinot, losing that time in, in the crosswinds and not just basically throwing in the towel, but saying, okay, I'm going to make this up when we get to the mountains. Garrett Thomas, you know, he kind of came into this not really knowing he didn't have a great season. A lot of things went wrong, and, but he, he stayed positive. Uh, another perfect example is Volt Poles today. He's been very weak at his normal strength. And then today he came in and, and kind of saved the day. That's just a few. I'm sure there's many, 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 many more. Every time a team loses a rider to sickness or injury, there is a little bit of a, a negative vibe. But you, you just got to get on top of that right away because these guys constantly are taking punches. Sometimes you're giving them, sometimes you're taking them. Sometimes you fall down on the mat, but sometimes it's not when you fall down or how you fall down, but it's like, how do you get back up? How have you turned it around? You know, how have you kind of, how has the team environment, how have you been able to kind of try and turn that around and, and, and fight on? Well, from a very young age, my dad always suggested, um, and it became kind of a mantra that I would have and repeat in my head. He'd say, trim off the peaks and fill in the valleys. So when you're riding well and things are going easy, you know, bring yourself down a little bit. And when things are down, it's never that bad. Bring yourself up. So I always like that. Trim off the peaks and fill in the valleys. And that's all you can do because ultimately your mental state has a huge factor on what you can do physically. There you go. The Tour de France. It's just the aura of that race and that, that, that can really push you to your absolute limits. And you do see that every year. You see one guy that's had just horrible luck, is down and out. Let's hear from uh, Mr. Mike Lepp. I've known Mike for, for a long time, and just to give the, the listeners some information, he has more than 30 years of experience working with athletes and teams to develop successful strategies in the area of individual and organizational human performance. He has a master's degree in exercise physiology and has worked with a number of athletes across several sports, including NASCAR, soccer, basketball, and of course, cycling. So Mike Lepp, welcome to the show. Hey, Bobby, how you doing, man? Doing great, doing great. Mike, today we're talking about positive mental attitude. I, I use mindset with that now, but it's probably the number one thing I get asked about today. Awesome. So we have the right guy on the pod, that's for sure. <laughs> so yeah, positive mental mindset, that's even better. We're going to change that. 
So Mike, firstly, can you explain your role to help athletes improve and have a positive mental mindset? You know, Bobby, I came from a background of science, sports, science, physiology. That's how we met a long time ago. And so I always thought to be better as an athlete, it's all in the, you know, performance, uh, you know, the actual physical output. And so we would measure things and we would look at things. But I've evolved over 35 years to where, I don't know if I'm letting a secret out here, and I don't know if I, I think my athletes are performing today, so they're not listening. But I've, I've learned that mindset and mentality, which is a lot of what you guys have been talking about today, is probably the most important physical parameter. And the bad thing is, and I do a lot of recruiting of athletes and, and, and things like that, it's hard to measure. Sports psychologists will say, oh, I can measure it. Um, sorry to the sports psychologists out there. I haven't found a tool yet, but, but it's tough. And, and you know that. And you know we can measure in the lab power outputs, VO2 max, and everything else. And then that athlete is a dud. And you're like, why? And it's usually a mindset issue. I always, I always used to say, if you think you can or think you can't, you're probably right. But in this sport, we often say it's physical. That's all that matters. But on a percentile scale, what percentage do you think the positive mental part of it plays into versus that pure physical, like you said, the VO2 and you know, just the ability to, to on the bike? Uh, in deference to my good friend, Alan Lim, I, I, I would tell you the best thing that ever happened in pro cycling was a power meter and the worst thing that ever happened in cycling was a power meter. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I had a lot of athletes who said, great, now they can see what I'm talking about on the bike and we know what it takes to get up this climb and, you know, all that. And some athletes put it to good use and some great athletes lived and died by it. and fell out of the sport. And, you know, I can say the same thing with measurables and, and we're in an age of analytics now and analytics are great, but I've also seen them send athletes in the wrong direction because they've become consumed by those things. So, you know, the mindset component is tough, like I said, to measure and we're in an age of measurables. So, um, you know, I go back to you when you came back you know, I was like, well, I don't know Bobby that well. I don't know how well. And for those of you that don't remember, you had a heart procedure, which <laughs> I say that's even worse than an injury because you think, you know, how am I going to come back from that and, and do a sport that depends on your heart? I have no idea how you did. I didn't know, you know, I thought in the back of my mind, I wouldn't have told you that then, but how do you get back out there and do that? And from hearing you talk about your dad today, now I'm starting to, to know where that came from. But that's a tough thing to measure and and overcoming physical, you know, setbacks and adversity. It I guess I see in my sport now, I, the closest I can come that oftentimes I see it in a blue collar mentality. And I think a lot of people don't realize and you, you can you guys can relate to that, that a lot of pro cyclists when you know we went to Europe, they had a blue collar mentality. And I was amazed at how they overcome adversity and things like the tour or you know, once again, you've like me, you have this long season, brutal. Uh, we're in New Hampshire today and it's like 120, you know, uh, heat index. Who, you know, manages that mentally? Sometimes I think it becomes more, you know, we hear 
blue collar mentality. Um, but I think you shared something earlier about, you know, what your dad says, how do you deal with the valleys and the peaks? And it's, once again, it falls back to that mindset. I'm sure in NASCAR, it's very similar to cycling. Crashes happen. Injuries from those crashes happen. It, how do you help a driver or a rider kind of recover from that? What, what are those steps of, you know, you've had a setback. Things are, you know, an accident happened, a crash happened. How do you help athletes or drivers get over that? I mean, we have a macro. One of the, the, and a lot of times people, when I came to motorsports from sports like cycling, they're way more similar than um, a lot of people realize. And in fact, probably the second biggest sport for us on the road is cycling. So uh, Bobby, you know that. You know, we have a lot of guys that are in motorsports that, that ride bikes. And, you know, I go back to 2015 when Kyle Busch won our championship. The first race of the year, so in February, he broke both legs, hit the wall head on 130 miles an hour, broke both legs, had to, had to be out about 10 races, but then came back and won the championship. I would say 70% of athletes that would have gone through that scary situation would have not even come back, much less win a championship in the same year. I think you've seen that in cycling over the years. It's a long season. We go February to November. There's room to recover if you can. And if I take Kyle, and like I said, uh, you can Google Kyle if you're if you're not into motorsports. He's probably one of the mentally toughest individuals I've um, ever met. I always say he's a little uh, Lance in a race car. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, it's that overcoming, you know, it's almost becomes a, 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 hey, you know, it happened and almost a kind of a smile. Well, I'm going to show everybody. And, you know, once again, is that something that's born into people? Do they learn it, you know, as a child? Um, I think it's both, you know, and, and there are stories all through sports, but um, one of the things you guys were talking about in descending, so I'll throw a little of that in there. I asked Kyle one time, like, what is the deal? 200 miles an hour, 180 in the turns. You know, how do you negotiate that, modulate things, which is a, somewhat like a descent? And he said, it's in the butt. So hmm. <laughs> I always wondered when I got into this sport, you know, what is the skill these guys have, one versus another? And they said the sensation that comes up through their butt and he always says I have a great butt so I just thought of that I'd be interested to ask Sean Yates or somebody who was a great descender from back in my day like what what makes that happen but once again it, it falls into mindset but coming back from an uh, an issue are there any tricks is do you have them read books listen to tapes meditate just take a break what would be some of the, the like your top three tips of helping someone through uh, a crisis. All of the above. Here's the key. I think today, one of the things I learned from Joe, who won three Super Bowls, who's my boss, <laughs> is he always told me uh, I, I, the combine's stupid. Numbers don't mean anything. Get to know the people. Get to know your athletes. Um, they're all different. Take them to dinner. 
dude, I said, well, geez, I'm a scientist. I got, that doesn't sound very smart. And that's what I've found. So all of the things you mentioned, you have to get to know the asset and which one. You can't take a global approach to your team or your group. And we're very similar to cycling. You, you, you can't win a race without the other guys with the team. And you have to, you know, there's a, some things work with other people, some things don't. And so you have to be a student as a coach of, of all of those things that, that help because they're all different. Bobby, you know that from, you know, some guys wreck and, and they're never the same and you can try everything and it's just hard to overcome that. And some guys, like I said, I just said with Kyle, you, I use you as an example, you know, coming back from, you know, gosh, I think after your procedure, you came back and had the best year of your career, maybe. Right. Yeah, we're going to save that for another podcast. You just let the the, the cat out of the bag there. <laughs> With the, everyone's like questioning, did he have a heart attack? But uh, we'll save that for another podcast. But but I mean, Mike, you know, everything, every every you have to get to know people and and all of those techniques. And you'll hear people now that subscribe to one or the other. But it, it really depends on on the person and what's um, going to help them overcome the adversity. Interesting. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, but I have to put you on the spot here. So I know there's a lot of drivers that ride bikes now and take it quite seriously. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Who is the best bike rider who is in NASCAR? You know, um, Hopefully Joe's not listening. I know he's not, but because <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could pick one of my guys. And and you know we did have Daniel Suarez last year, and Daniel's become quite quite good on the bike. Um, but we all know Jimmy's probably uh, Jimmy Johnson's probably because he's been doing it longer. But there's some good guys coming along. Um, like I said, on a Saturday after practice in our sport, the, the peloton's probably up to a hundred now. It's amazing how many NASCAR drivers are riding bikes now. It's so cool. Crew guys. So every day at lunch here uh, in Charlotte, we've got a group. Our lunchtime rides just for Joe Gibbs Racing is up to um, about 30, 40 guys. Oh, yeah. So, so Jimmy, Jimmy J, Jimmy Johnson. One of the coolest stories about that was the first Hincapie Grand Fondo that I did here in Greenville in 2016. George said that Jimmy's coming with his pit crew, a couple other guys, and they finished the Grand Fondo, which is not a walk in the park. It's a very difficult Fondo. And then right after they finish, I see them running with their bikes up to this hill where there's a helicopter waiting. And five minutes after they got in there, the helicopter takes off and they fly to whatever track they were at and they had to do qualifying that evening. I was blown away. I was blown away. It was so cool. I mean, this helicopter was so impressive, but how cool was that? The biggest rate, the biggest competition when we look at our season for the year, for the year, isn't necessarily on Sunday when we race. It's on Saturday when we go for the training ride. So um, <laughs> that's a little secret because that's because cool. we go to so many places. Um, next week, next week we're in the Pocono. You know, we go back to Pocono Mountains, is where we have a lot of climbing. So we have guys that are climbers. We have guys that are better on the flats, better on the sprint. So 
um, a little secret about the NASCAR circuit. I'm, I'm sure those guys have taken a, pulled you aside quite a few times and asked you questions. So great. Thank you for your influence on, on them because it's so great sharing the passion for cycling with, with other athletes that uh, do different, totally different sports. But again, Mike, thank you so much. Have a great weekend and good luck to your team, Joe Gibbs Racing, uh, in the future. Thanks, guys. Bobby, I had no idea that uh, the NASCAR races were so competitive at, uh, at bike riding. I've always uh, been intrigued by NASCAR, actually, so, and I've never been, but maybe there's a reason to go now. Oh, yeah. I, these guys take it serious. They, they, they play for keeps, and um, following a couple of these guys on descents will improve your descending. There, there's no doubt about that. These guys definitely have that, that feel for it. But the coolest, coolest thing was that they actually had um, their, their pit crews working with them. Yeah, that is sick. Um, and those guys, I used to ride with Troy Bayless, a MotoGP rider, and he was an absolute madman on the downhill. So I can imagine those guys are equally the same. Let's move on, Bobby, to uh, tomorrow's the rest day. We're not going to be on air, but... Uh, what's what's ahead let's give a little quick rundown of of you know what's going to happen in the next in the final week of the tour yeah let's you know let's start with the rest day these guys deserve this rest day and the organizers of the tour have actually been quite nice because the stage after the rest day should be a stage for the sprinters um followed by kind of like another warm-up mountain day but then man it it gets hard those, those last three stages in the mountains, in the Alps, it's, it's going to turn this race on its head for sure. So I think these guys need to concentrate on recovering on their rest day, knowing that they have a couple kind of like a sprinter day and an intermediate climbing day. But man, the sting really comes at the end of this race. So they're going to they're gonna have to conserve as much as possible, really get their tactics straight. And I think we're going to see just another amazing week in the Tour de France. Yeah, I can't wait. I think uh, it's going to be, I mean, well, if anything, if this tour is anything to go by, then we've got no idea what we're in for. Um, and it's going to certainly be not what we expect. So looking forward to that. And uh, with that, Bobby, nice show. Uh, to all our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, you know, giving us the uh, good positive vibes. Subscribe to iTunes, SoundCloud, Head on over to velonews.com for uh, all your info on the Tour de France as well as uh, our podcast. We would love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at superfan at velonews.com or get at bobby at bobby.julik on Instagram or myself at that is Gus. Bobby, mate, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. We have the day off tomorrow, so tune back in on Tuesday and don't forget to put your socks on. <laughs>